Hey guys, welcome to the Business Line Podcast. My name is Brian. I'm Manny. And we're here to bring you an awesome new episode. Today we've got our guest, Jeff Barnes. So let me just tell you a little bit about Jeff before we welcome him into the show. Uh, Jeff was a U.S. Navy nuclear power plant operator on a submarine. Um, he was a Navy diver, risk management director, technology enthusiast, business growth expert, advisor, and management consultant. He spearheaded international projects as an innovation and technology director, working with corporate VCs, strategic partners, and other Fortune 500 leaders to bring new technologies and ideas to the global market. Guys, you guys are going to be floored when you hear some of his stories that he shares with us today. Uh, he took over as a CEO uh, at Angel Investors Network to help more entrepreneurs bring their products and services and technology to the market as an advisor, mentor, coach, and venture fund manager. Honestly, I don't know how he found time to do all this and still does. Um, he spent over $10 million on digital marketing campaigns, mentoring and advising over 1,000 companies. Uh, he's been helping companies generate over $1 billion in advance in investment capital. That's a big number. That's a lot of zeros. Um, he's owned, operated, or advised companies in the finance, insurance, investing, and real estate, healthcare, internet of things, AR, VR, financial tech, e-commerce, and mobility verticals. Man, I'm still not done. During his free time, <laughs> when he has some, he spends a great deal of time coaching his two boys' sports teams, uh, enjoying the outdoors, traveling, and enjoying life with his wife, Amara. We're so happy to have you here with us today, Jeff. Thank you so much for being with us. Jeff, thanks so much uh, for being on the show. We're a pretty young show. Uh, you, however, have been a super successful guy in, uh, in entrepreneurial endeavors. Um, we've just learned a little bit about you recently, but I, I can't tell you how much I'm impressed by what you've been doing. Manny, what, what about you? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, like from being in Navy and like as a nuclear power plant operator on a submarine and then you know into the business world it's a totally how did you make that switch. transition right yeah transition yeah <laughs> we've got we got some folks we got a team member on our team here who's uh retired army um and it took a few years for him to transition into professional life how did you make that happen well so luckily for me um you know i was able to get a job with a company that hired 75 percent veterans so oh. my transition was relatively easy, but I, I got to tell you, it was still a culture shock, a complete culture shock. I went from being on a submarine where you literally never leave work, right? Like you're there all the time. <laughs> and as a result, you know, they can wake you up at any hour of the day or night. And on submarines, you, you have an 18 hour day. It's not a 24 hour clock. So you're literally rotating shifts. So it's a six hour shift, three shifts a day. So when you're underway, you know, you have no concept of time or anything like that. You're just always on the on the clock, always on call. And so they can, you know, come get you for whatever they need to. And you get a few hours of sleep a day if you're lucky. When I got out, I decided I didn't like that being on constant call. And I didn't like having to go to a place and being stuck there. I didn't like the, you know, I wouldn't call it claustrophobia because you can't be claustrophobic on a submarine, but still feeling confined. And so I ended up getting a job. I've been working remote since 2006. I haven't had an office I've had to go into. I've been working by myself in my own house, you know, from a laptop. And, you know, I had a company car and I traveled from location to location. But I went completely, you're saying off the deep end, complete 180 from immersed in your job and always there and always on call to I don't have to see anybody if I don't want to. And I think that helped me in a few different ways because it allowed me to 
just focus on the things I want to do. Because when you're, you know, in your young 20s, we all know that you just don't really know anything about yourself or the world or what you really want to do. And even though you're full of piss and vinegar and you think you do. Um, <laughs> but the fact is that you need to spend some time learning yourself. And I got a chance to get into a job where I worked with vets. I worked with a lot of uh, former military folks. And yet I didn't have to be stuck in an office. So it allowed for a little bit more of a gradual transition, if you will, to being a civilian, uh, if you could ever really call me that. Yeah. I remember, Manny, remember when we moved into the office? In, so our first office after we were working in our houses back in 2016, we moved into the Fond du Lac church office mm -hmm. upstairs. And then downstairs was a nonprofit um, uh, veterans organization. This, yeah. The executive director was a, was a vet. And then his, uh, I guess, number one was a vet too. And they it was called salute the troops so that was really big on transitional lifestyle changes and kind of getting folks from a place where they're struggling coming out of out of service and getting them back getting them into civilian life so that's that's Very crazy cool. yeah awesome well so after that after that first job so you went you went from navy to to employee status right and did you jump around kind of running different companies as employees? When did you make the shift to to kind of being your own boss, being an entrepreneur, business owner, and, and going into that kind of world? Yeah, so I didn't know anything about business going into the military. Um, the most I'd known was my dad was a small business owner growing up, but you don't learn anything about the business side. You learn how to, you know, like for him, it was a, installing hardwood floors and how to work your butt off, uh, sweeping up floors and cleaning up messes, but you don't learn the business side. And when I was in high school, I ran the school store. That's about the most experience I had to uh, to business was selling Otis Spunkmeyer cookies and muffins and things like that. <laughs> so when I was in the Navy, you know, one of these these shifts happened for me, which was I realized that it, what I didn't want, I didn't know what I actually wanted, but I know what I didn't want. I didn't want to be told what to do all the time and how to do it and all of that, which, you know, kind of oxymoronical being in the military. But the the impetus for me was uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And reading that book when I was 21 years old on deployment one time and realizing, oh, that all makes a lot of sense. It's really, really straightforward. Yeah, I don't want to work for somebody else the rest of my life. Well, what the hell are you going to do? And I had no idea, right? I was really good at being a mechanic. I was really good at technology and systems and things like that. But I didn't know how to turn this into a business. And somebody you know, from a network marketing company approached me and talked to me about financial services and how you well, can make so much money one? if you just... I got to ask you which one? Yeah, it's Primerica. Primerica, right. okay. Oh, I've, and been, so, I've been approached by those guys in the past, sure. Yeah, and so I'm thinking, they're talking about how you can make six figures. You can even do it part-time while you're still in the Navy. So while I'm still in the Navy, I'm learning about financial services. I became, I got my life insurance license. I got my mortgage um, originator's license. It wasn't a mortgage brokerage. But I got all this stuff and I, I got my, I was working on my Series 6 and 63. And then I realized at some point that, you know, everything that I'm learning and I'm doing is actually not teaching me how to make money. It's teaching me how to like not get in trouble. It's not teaching mm -hmm. me how to sell. It's not teaching me how to market my business. It's not doing any of this stuff. So even though I did it for years and I kept going to these meetings and talking to people, I was so uncomfortable talking to anybody about selling anything at all. And I finally realized, hey, this is just not for me. And I, at that time, I'd finally gotten out of the Navy. So I had a job. I was working in financial services, but more on the engineering side. So uh, we can talk about that a little bit if we want to. But um, I still realize, man, I'm working for somebody else. Even though I'm a, I have a great job, I don't have to see my boss, but a couple times a year, I don't have to go to an office. I still feel trapped. I don't feel like this is for me. So that entrepreneurial itch was still there. And I just couldn't figure out what the hell I wanted to do with that or how to do anything with it or what to do. And then I met Dan Kennedy, um, started going to Dan Kennedy events. 
joined his masterminds and joined the the platinum programs and things like that. And they were helping me to sort of sift through all of this. And along the way, I ended up meeting uh, a girl who would be my wife and she was going to be a chiropractor. So I helped her through chiropractic school. I eventually, you know, long story short, eventually helped her open up her chiropractic college because I'd learned so much about business and marketing and sales and all this stuff along the way. But I still know what I wanted to sell or what I wanted to do. Right. So I was helping her. And that's where I kind of started becoming a consultant because it was really easy for me to consult with other people on marketing, on systems, on technology, on operations, all these different things. And we launched her business. And within a few years, her chiropractic comp- um, office, just one office, was doing almost seven figures. Mm. That's good for a chiropractor. Yeah, as a chiropractor, it's pretty good, right? And so I said, hey, this is a pretty good gig. you know. And, and now I'd gotten to a point with our income. I said, hey, now I can make this leap. I've learned so much in the corporate world. I've done so many different things. I got my MBA and this I'm truncating a really long story, but I said, now that you're making enough money, I'm going to quit my job so I can go pursue my thing, which is essentially uh, advising, acquiring, investing in companies and yeah. helping them grow. So essentially a private equity venture capital model. And I did that. And then about a month later, we decided to get a divorce. <laughs> so oh. it didn't exactly work out. So the <laughs> the entrepreneurial journey for me yeah. was just woven through all these different weird ways. And, um, you know, I fell down more times than I cared to count. I scuffed my knees, broke my face, you know, whatever you yeah. can say. Those are the, those are the, I tell you what, I love success stories, but I love the stories about the failures and overcoming and keeping going. You know what I mean? Like we hear all the time about the, the and I'm not a negative guy, and I don't think failures are a negative. They're an opportunity, no. right? The best so, best tool you can you have to learn in your entire life. You know, I used to say, learn from other people's mistakes because you don't have enough time to make them all yourself. Yeah, you don't learn when you win, right? Yeah, we just you, can't. You celebrate when you win, but you don't really learn anything. You learn when you fail or you get a no or, you know, you hit a wall. That's when you learn to go around it or over it or through it. So Absolutely. Man, so you got it. So divorce a year after jumping in to kind of what you wanted to do. How did you? How did you navigate? How did, how did you turn that into a win? Yeah, so I'd been working with my partner now uh, at the time. His name his name's Greg, and Greg and I started working together because I was going to events. I was getting better at speaking and consulting and all this sort of stuff. And he got to know me. He goes, oh, "Man, well, what you can do, what I can do, we can do some great things together." And it took a really long time to make that jump. So I was kind of doing like the side hustle along the way and learning ins and outs of this and going to different events and speaking and all this. And so when I, I finally quit corporate in 2018, um, it was like, hey, let's just take, I took over Angel Investors Network as the CEO. I knew all the ins and outs of the operations and things like that. And he was still helping me with a lot of the, you know, the products, the services and how we pull things together. And we had a small team. And I said, all right, great. I will take this over and I'll start running this. And then, it, but we weren't making a whole lot of money, right? So when you're an angel investor, even if you're putting money into a company or getting equity for consulting, it's not like you get cash flow, right? That's the cash right. later side of things. And so even though we had a lot of portfolio companies and we had a lot of great opportunities on uh, in the company and under my belt, uh, these were not cash flowing opportunities. So we had to find a way to create a lot of cash flow. And when I left the company, I thought, okay, well, at least I'm set. I don't have to worry about this because I got my other business with now my ex-wife. And I said, okay, I can at least survive on that income while I build this up over time. But then, like I said, that went away almost immediately. So I said, okay, crap, we got to figure out a way to really build this. And one of the companies that Angel Investors Network had essentially invested in was Greg's new company, LaunchCart. At the time, it wasn't called LaunchCart yet, but we said, 
It was all about e-commerce and and building up e-com stores. It's like, great. And we partnered with these other guys and they said, hey, we know how to do the drop shipping. So we put this little partnership together called the Digital Nomads. And in that process, we found out that they were pretty good at, at the um, sourcing of products and working with the direct directly with the manufacturer. So we built a direct to consumer manufacturing and um, direct sales method using we ended up setting over 22 different Shopify stores. And we took that company from zero dollars in November of 2018 to 17 million dollars in revenue by July of 2019. And my Sounds role nice. in that was the operations, making sure that all the I's were dotted, T's were crossed, the accounts were taken care of, the uh, the bills were being paid. And so I was on the phone with American Express and Chase and wiring money back and forth and overseas and dealing with all that stuff. So that that became my cash cow for a while uh, until that fell out and the rug got completely pulled out from under us on that one too, unfortunately. But it was, it was pretty incredible. Um, we call that our China debacle. Um, we got so good at scaling up product sales because we had a great team that was putting together the the advertising and the marketing. We were phenomenal at running the ads on Facebook. And because we had, you know, some success, what we were able to do is, you know, we, we all talk about average order value, customer lifetime value, and the customer acquisition cost. Well, our average order value was generally 2x of our customer acquisition cost and our cost of goods and our um, everything was a minuscule percentage. So we were averaging about 10 to 15% margins on every single product that we were selling, which was great. So that allowed us to go from testing an ad at $50 a day to within a few days going up to $5,000, $15,000, $50,000 in ad spend per day. And now you're just blowing it out. And oh, we blew it up it. like crazy. Yeah. And what happened was we just, and this wasn't just in the US, we actually do things internationally. And so we we're shipping all over the world and things were going gangbusters. Well, when you start skipping, we found one product, we found these pillows, and then we found like it was trinkets and trash, right? Where's houseware stuff, right? yeah. pillows and mirrors and cell phone holders and chargers and all this sort of stuff. And we found one of these products that was just absolutely phenomenal, right? It was this beauty mirror that women would put it, it had magnifying, but it was also suction cups. So you didn't have to install it. It was just everybody loved this thing. We started selling this thing so fast, and our manufacturers, like, man, okay, this is great, but. You know, I, I got to get more more materials and say, well, we're not pulling our foot off because, you know, with the algorithms, if you pull your foot right. off the gas, they essentially stop giving you the love and stop feeding your ad to everybody, even though you're paying them. So uh, this is before iOS 14 and all these other things. We had incredible tracking and analytics and we just kept scaling this. And we were literally doing $100,000 a day, sometimes up to $150,000 per day in, in ad spend, right? Mm -hmm. And doing it profitably. So we were pulling money in hand over fist. And then all of a sudden one day I wake up and I'm looking at the bank account because every morning at 6 a.m. I have to get on the phone. You know, banks are finally open on the East Coast and I have to wire money. And every time you wire about $100,000, American Express wants to verify that's a real payment. Sure. And so yeah. they got to get you on the phone. You're talking to the banks and they're, you know, you're doing a three-way with the credit card company in the bank. And sure enough, they're like, okay, yeah, it's good. And so I open up the bank account. I look at them like, oh man, we had a gangbuster day. We have, you know, $1.5 million that came in. This is amazing. What the hell's going on? Like, holy crap. And I'm just thinking, man, that means we must have just been blowing out of the water with the ads. And so, you know, for anybody who's run that significant number of ads, if you've never gotten, if you don't get a, uh, um, if you're not like on a net 30 term with Facebook or any of these other places where they're actually invoicing you and you're mm -hmm. paying with a credit card, you oh, got to yeah. make sure there's room on the credit card, right? And so <laughs> even American Express, even though you have these massive lines, they'll still stop the ad spend at some point. It's like, no, you've, you've exceeded your limit. Yeah, we need yep. to get a payment from you. And so that was my job was to make sure that was happening. Well, 
I, I look at the bank and there's all this extra money and I look through the transaction record and we have a wire transfer fi for $500,000. I'm like, what the hell do we have a $500,000 wire transfer for? This doesn't make any sense. So I call up Greg and Greg's like, what are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. So we call up our other partners like, hey, what's going on? And no one knows, right? We just have this $500,000 wire transfer that came in from China. And the next day it happens again. Like, what is going on? We have no idea what's actually happening. Like, where is this money? It's cool to get money coming in. But then like, we figured out it's from our why. manufacturer. Yeah. Right. It's it's coming from our manufacturer. We're like, hey, why are you sending us money back? He goes, because I ran out of materials. I can't I can't supply your 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 sales. Like, what do you mean? You know, what do you mean you actually ran out of materials? He goes, Well, you know, we cannot keep up with your demand. So no, 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 that was not the deal. You said you could keep up with the demand. That's why we chose you. That's why we're doing all this stuff. That's why right. we went crazy with this. And he goes, Sorry, I can't. Say, well, we need to find another supplier. We need to find somebody else. Well, in their culture, apparently this guy had stolen business from these other manufacturers in the area. And when he went to them or we went to them, they're like, no, we, we can't help you. Sorry. You know, there was no wow. going and finding a secondary supplier or anything. It was just like all of a sudden. Nobody would touch out. it. Nobody would touch it. And so we went from having, you know, these incredible record sales days. And our average order value was roughly 40 to 50 bucks. So not huge. You know, enough for impulse buy with these people. But we went from, you know, making anywhere from you know, a couple hundred thousand to a few hundred thousand dollars a day to all of a sudden issuing refunds every single day. And because yeah. it's drop shipping, we told everybody, hey, there's a six week lag between when you place the order and when you're going to get it. You know, just be aware of that. And we knew we had some time. So we were trying desperately to find, find replacements. Find some way to sell it. Yeah. And we couldn't. And so even though we had over 400,000 customers, the last 50,000 or so, ended up getting refunds and that wiped us out completely. And so whenever you start doing that, you're getting chargebacks, you're getting refunds, your merchant accounts get shut down, PayPal shuts you down. PayPal was also holding like six months worth of um, money because they need to make sure that you can cover any sort of chargebacks and refunds. And we'd exceeded that pretty quickly. So all these financial economics that you're dealing with when it comes to, you know, making drop shipping work, we're going against us. And we couldn't find a replacement. And we'd already spent the money on advertising. It's not like Facebook's going to give us a refund, right? Right. I mean, if, if we could have gotten the refund from Facebook and from the manufacturer, maybe we could have survived that, but we couldn't. And so literally everything got shut down almost overnight. Um, it took that's us incredible. months and months and months to try and get this thing back up and running. We we're trying to figure out new ways to do this stuff. And, we, and that's how LaunchCart was born, actually, because we were suffering all these different challenges. And then we're like, okay, now we think we can get this back up and going. And then COVID happens. When COVID happens, the entire supply chain shut down. So now there's no manufacturing at all. There's no products. There's nothing we can do about this. We're like, we're dead in the water. So that that it business ended up going completely under. Drug drug us down with it. Personally, it was miserable. You know, lost partnerships, mm -hmm. lost friends, all that fun stuff that you have to deal with. Um, but that was a kick in the teeth, to say the least. Wow, that's so incredible. <laughs> Jeff, I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> I had to watch out when I asked for, for the lope. Man, that is that's incredible. But here you are. So there again, we testimony. Survived. You can literally wake up in the morning, have transactions show up in your account for five hundred grand. Learn that your supplier is cutting you, and nowhere to go. Issue refunds. Company can go belly up, but you can still make it and turn it around. Oh man, yeah. When you're, uh, and I never really understood that in, in, at a visceral level when it comes to um, a company that actually, that's actually making money going bankrupt and going under. 
until you start understanding, you know, the the financial terms, the economics of it, and, and you live through it. You're like, okay, now I get it. Now I understand how this can actually happen. Uh, but yeah, turning that thing around from 2019 until today has been a journey in and of itself. I mean, you hear stories a lot, at least I hear stories a lot, or I see people talking about or, you know, videos or podcasts talking about, you know, business ownership and how there's not a lot of risk in it and things like that. But <laughs> you can go from top of the world to bottom of the barrel and then owing a lot of money really quick and your life can be decimated. I don't think a lot mm -hmm. of folks kind of understand that from a perspective of never being in, in business ownership. Annie, what do you think? I mean, you know, like there are a couple of factors here, you know, like from zero to hundred, they went really fast and then COVID happened. And again, there is another call with the uh, suppliers not able to meet your needs. So, I mean, my take on this is, you know, like one thing after another thing and another thing that it's happened like very down, quickly. And because, yeah. Take yeah. another hit here. Yeah. We'll Didn't give you time to, you know, like settle down or, you know, look, look for options or, you know, like, yeah. So COVID affected many businesses, but yeah, this story is kind of incredible, you know, like 2018, 2019, and then we are sitting at 2023. And and now your focus is more on the digital marketing side of things, right? Somewhat, yeah. So there, there are some other fun things that were happening during that time. I still ran Angel Investors Network. We actually had $15 million committed for a fund. We lost that because of COVID. So that went away in the meantime. You know, when you're on top of the world and you're making all this money, everybody gets attracted to you. Like, oh, everything yeah. you touch turns to gold, right? So we were able to raise money. We raised into a small angel fund at that time. Everything was going great. And then COVID happens and literally everything went away. Um, so we still have Angel Investors Network and, and what was happening during with Angel Investors Network is that we were doing these events. We we're doing five events a year. And so AIN, even though it was separate from Digital Nomads, AIN was still setting up these events. So in 2019, we did five events. We raised a whole bunch of money for ourselves, for businesses. In-person events time. where people are coming in. Yeah, and actually coming okay. in. And of course, yeah. that all went away. And when when they shut us down in March, we had, a, we had an event planned on March 30th, right? So March 16th, everything gets shut down. Like, hey, sorry. See you later. We can't do this. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, the government shut us down. Say, so, okay, we need a refund. They're like, well, we'll try and get you that. But these are hotels. These are boutique hotels that we're doing our events in. And one of the hotels actually declared bankruptcy. So we lost all of our deposits on that oh. one. So that was pretty miserable. Um, we had other events planned throughout the year that we'd also put deposits down. Those got shut down. Some of them we got the money back. Most of them we didn't. Um, and we also never got a chance to redo the events. It was just like, and you, you know, you're spending money on marketing to get people to events. That money's all gone. And we were issuing refunds, right? We're trying to do the right thing by issuing refunds to the people who were going to come to the events. Some people were great. They said, hey, just when you have the next one, you know, invite me. We'll call it good, which that was nice. Um, all comes down to communication. But we we lost our asses in in 2020. Um, yeah, I, I wow. could not be. I, and I was going through a divorce at the same time. I had to move out of my house. I went into an apartment. You know, I'm all of a sudden dealing with parenting plans and all that sort of stuff. And just like my entire world was turned upside down um, right so around when COVID started. Well. You got kids. What's that? You have kids. Yeah, I have too. two boys. I have two Who's boys at the time. Well, right now they're uh, ten and eleven. So yeah, a few years ago, so seven, eight year, eight year old little kids going through that. Um, and so now I'm living in this tiny little apartment, and all of a sudden they're going to, uh, you know, homeschooling or virtual schooling. You know, sitting on their their devices right outside my office while I'm trying to work and take care of them. So to say that it was a, a challenging time would be, a, I think, a little bit of an understatement. Dude. Man, what was in your in your mind? What was what got you through that? 
uh, I ended up meeting my wife, my new wife. Um, so uh, Amara is my wife, and we met March 9th, 2020. And March 16th is when at least our state, but most of the country shut down completely for the two week, you know, flatten the curve thing. Right. And uh, we met right then. And luckily, we were on the same page with practically everything. And so even though that seems like a really strange time to start dating, we found each other right in time. So we got to go on one date before the world got shut down. And so when you can't go on regular dates, you can't go to a bar, you can't go to a movie, you can't go to dinner, you can't do any of that stuff. You learn a lot about your partner really, really quickly. Right. So. Um, the two of us working together, just kind of working through it made all the difference in the world. And, you know, I'm a dad. It's not like I can just like yeah. shut up in a hole and disappear or run away. I have two boys and these guys need me. So um, I had to still show up. And th- not to say that there weren't days that I just wanted to like bang my head against the wall and put my fist through the drywall. But, you know, I had to show up for them 100%. Would you say some of your, your background and growing up and kind of seeing your dad work through you know, probably working in that business, being in, being in the service, you know, learning the ability to carry on and stuff like that. Is, is that kind of part of it too, you think? Yeah, hundred percent. Um, you know, my, my dad struggled with his business. He had at one point, I think he had something like 40, 50 employees, his business partner embezzled from him and he lost oh. everything at one point when he was yeah. in his forties with kids. So, you know, he had three kids and a wife and everything. And so Watching him go through that, I was like, man, I never want to be that. That sucks. That's why I joined the Navy eventually was I was like, I never want to deal with that. That's why I chose not to go entrepreneurial in the first place versus doing something safe and stable and secure. Um, but here I was essentially yeah. reliving the same situation, just in a little bit different terms and realizing, hey, you know, my dad pulled through. We were fine. We ended up having a roof over our head all the time. We got taken care of, um, you know, so, yeah, I got to show up. Like, And, you know, between my dad, my grandfather's. You know, being in the military, they just teach you that if you grow up in the right kind of environment, I think, um, and not to say that everybody has to grow up in that environment, you have to find an environment that will suit you to help you with this stuff, is that it will reinforce that you do have things within you that maybe you didn't know about, and you will find a way to persevere. And more importantly, maybe not more importantly, but just as importantly as that, is having somebody else there with you so you're not going through it alone, right? You guys were talking about the the vets and folks that struggle. Um I could say with almost absolute certainty that the number one reason that there's veteran suicides in the first place is because they go from this incredible community and camaraderie um, to having nothing or being on the outside, though, even though you might be surrounded by people, they don't know you from Adam. Even if they're your brother or your sister, you're like, no, you you have no idea what I've gone through and what I've dealt with. And I can't talk to you about any of it because you look at me like I'm crazy. So I shut myself up in this little hole. And that's the most um, dangerous thing that a person can do, especially when they're having any sort of PTSD, mental challenges, Absolutely. things like that. Yeah, for sure. I can relate to that story. You know, like you, you're doing really good in life. Your, your business is growing. Everything is, you know, good. You're not worried about money. And then suddenly, you know, like one day you get up and everything is, you know, like going down the hill. I mean, in fact, not going down the hill. It's down the hill. It's there already. I mean, I have suffered that. Yeah, like, you know, for in sure. 2014, you know, we were doing, we had like around 250 people. And suddenly next day, I saw that the company that we were working for or working through got sold. And they decided they didn't want to continue with us. So from 250 to 300 pe- people in our company, we were down to, you know, eight, nine people. It was kind of a question of how to survive, survive this. So my question, you know, what kept you going, you know? I mean, you were doing good, 
and most of the people almost 99% of the people will start thinking about okay you know this business thing is not working out let's you know like join a company you know start from there and then again you know like maybe after a couple of years i can you know try my hands in new business so from 0 to 100 and then 100 to 0 Yeah, why not just go take the safe route and get a job, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Why didn't you do that? I you know why you kept, you know, like trying new things. Yeah, good question. Um I've been told I'm unemployable and I tend to agree with that. So there's there's that challenge, but I will tell you that worse than having external external circumstances thrust upon you in a, a really crappy way which the whole world was dealing with at that point is voluntarily putting yourself into a shitty situation, right? Mm-hmm. Don't know if I'm allowed to cuss or not, but hopefully You guys will you'll forgive me on that one. My my son will give me a dirty look. I'll look at him and be like he's a he's a good guy. Don't worry about it. It's cool. It's okay. And so what I've learned about myself, you know, going back to my military days and whatnot is that when I feel like I don't have my personal autonomy, I feel like a tiger in a cage. You know, I mm. I just feel miserable. And and at that time, you know, we were having you know, the whole world was going through massive um Angulations and we we're just you know having this crazy effect on everybody in so many different ways and I have my personal beliefs on a lot of things and the number one belief that I hold near and dear to my heart is that if I'm doing something or something's being told to me that I am forced to for, for me to do that I don't believe in then I can't think straight I literally mm-hmm. have to get out of that situation and I think if somebody the way the best way I could describe it is if you're underwater and you can't breathe you're going to do everything you can to try and get that next gulp of air, right? And that's how I feel when I'm working for somebody else. Um and it it's a really miserable feeling and I know this because I've had to go through that situation long enough and knowing that you have something to offer and the people within your organization either don't understand you or they're risk averse or they say, "Hey, this is the way we've always done it." Like worst excuse for doing something in my opinion. Um but that's why I felt like yep. every single time I was working with a corporation and having to deal with HR and touchy feely and take care of somebody's feelings before you actually PC take care of the job and, like I can't oh, handle yeah. that stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know. So um I'm not going to say that that was the only reason because I'm sure ego and pride was another big piece of it. And yeah. I had raised money. Remember I'd raised money, I have shareholders. Mm-hmm. I had invested in companies so in 2019 I was doing pretty well. and i took on a lot of responsibilities i took on debt i took on investors and i had felt i had an obligation to them and so even though literally all my partners left they're like hey we can't handle this anymore we got to go to something else i mm-hmm. had to stick around because i owed this to those people as well and i couldn't have that hanging over my head for the rest of my life either that i just like failed them it's one thing if you feel like you failed yourself okay you have to look yourself in the mirror every single day um and sometimes that's the worst form of failure but to feel like i've let other people down that actually hurts me more than letting myself down i can i can fix myself i can't fix what happened to somebody else they may you know hold a grudge against me forever what it doesn't really matter um i need to go and make right on my promises and so that's that's another big driving force um i'd love to tell you that it's because i want to show my kids hey this is what it looks like and you got to stick through it like that sounds great but they were 7 years old right they're not right. going to get yeah. it you're not that. thinking about that in the moment yeah. you're really not no i i, I like had obligations movie. yeah exactly <laughs> slow motion exactly. sequence look over at you manny and i'm doing this for you bud but no but in all seriousness there's times a few years back when we were it was just you and me and 
Joe, our, we have another business partner, his name's Joe. He wasn't even really with us yet. He was kind of helping us on the side. And man, he'd come up on me. He, he, Brian, I'm out of money. We got to figure something out. I'm like, don't give up. Don't give up. And uh, he didn't. And we made it, we were making every day. We got new challenges and stuff as we grow. And I mean, you know, we, we kind of believed in our product and our vision and we kind of evolved, you know, with the moving times. And we right. grew and we, I mean, we got, we got our, we, we built our original client base and we grew through um, some cold calling at first and then uh, just meeting people and doing a good job and referring and, you know, we grew and then we got into the digital marketing game. We hired a company, a smaller boutique company here in Wisconsin. And at the time for our size and our budget, they did a pretty good job. They at least got the, the needle moving in the right direction for us but our needs kind of started to outgrow what they could really provide for us from a standpoint of every time we needed a little bit more in the terms of service or content creation or whatever needed to be done, that that invoice from them would grow relatively exponentially. You know what I mean? And we were hoping for more of a kind of like our model of it, which is kind of all-inclusive flat rate, find the right MRR, and then you're in. And we weren't seeing that uh, from from that organization as awesome as they were for us. So we what we started to do is find some people internally, hired a few people on our team over in India, learning a lot on this side. But we're muddling through it a bit. We, we've got a good company that we work with from the IT managed service side of things uh, called Chartech. That's these guys behind me here. They help out with their kind of marketing, uh, digital marketing um, uh, they have a really good process they put in place, so we just have access to it and basically copy everything they do right now. But we want to blow that out to all the other things we do. So when you're working with a small business, Jeff, you know, uh, how do you get them from really not doing it very well to getting to a place where they're they're banging out digital marketing and they can explode their their present presence and start to see sales climb too? Yeah, well, I will tell you that's that's probably the million dollar question for any agency, right? Right. is, you know, what is it you can do? And I found the number one biggest challenge, I'm sure you guys have seen this too, is it's the CEO or the CMO at a business. You know, they're the biggest bottleneck and they want to do things their way or they're stuck in, in a way that maybe doesn't work or doesn't suit them. And so you're changing a paradigm. And when you're trying to shift anyone's paradigm, you're also shifting a culture. And if you're trying to shift a culture, geez, that's like the hardest thing you can possibly do inside of a company. But when a company, and that's why we did similar to what you guys are saying. So I can back up just a second with Angel sure. Investors Network. We're we're a network of investors. We want to invest in companies. We want those companies to scale and be successful. So we're all successful. Well, what we found is that every single one of these companies we worked with struggled with their marketing. They struggled with their go-to-market strategy, their branding, their value proposition, their unique sales proposition, all of that stuff. And so they ended up coming back to us for consulting and all of this. And I said, and it, it took me years. And I kept saying this to people because we started getting more marketing clients at AIM. Like, guys, we're not a marketing agency. That's not what I want to do. That's not what our business is. And so over the course of a few years, including building up entire, you know, multi-million dollar e-commerce sites and uh, nutraceutical brands and and uh, hardware and software and SaaS and all these different companies, say we need to spin the marketing stuff out. Like we can't do that at AIM. That's not what we are. So we spun that out and we started up our marketing agency. And we said, I want to take an approach that is focused on the growth side of marketing. And to me, that's lead generation and marketing automation, mm -hmm. right? Because all the other stuff, the branding, like that's so important, it's, it's vital, but it's not my forte. And so we end up hiring people and outsourcing that wherever we can, if we need to do branding. If we look at the brand, like I, I tell everybody, it's like, I don't know how to make something look amazing, but I sure know when it looks like crap. 
So mm-hmm. you know, I can help you out with that, or I can help you out with your brand positioning. We can talk to them. We consult with them. But we said, if we want to come in and be successful for you, we literally have to take over almost all aspects of the marketing. We literally have to be the agency so you can be, we can be an outsourced marketing department for you. And everybody has different opinions on what that looks like. I come from a direct response world. Our goal is if you spend a money, a dollar on, on advertising, you want to get at least a dollar, if not $2 back as soon as possible, right? And that means that we also need to track everything. We need to have data and analytics and we need to have, you know, the proper sales sequence and sales process engineered and marketing automations and follow-ups and funnels built and all this sort of stuff. And so um, to go back to your question and answer that, like, how do you get that small business there? It's you need to understand really what their what their benchmarks are right now and what success looks like for them, right? Because an e-commerce business is very different than an attorney. Mm -hmm. And an attorney that gets paid on an hourly rate is very different than an attorney that gets paid on a retain or on a uh, um, a contingency fee, right? And so we need to look at it and say, we have a um, a college actually that's one of our clients, and these folks are a college that. Actually, now they travel. So they have virtual locations and they have uh, satellite locations, all this sort of stuff. And they went from having a single hub to now having satellite locations. Well, guess what? When you go from one place, having one, like say all of a sudden Harvard decides to go put everything online or go have different Harvard satellites around the country. Well, they have to market things a little bit differently, right? You're still marketing the brand, but maybe your unique selling proposition is no longer come to our amazing campus and be surrounded by the exact same people that every Harvard alum has always been surrounded by. Maybe that's not it anymore. Maybe it's something different. And so you have to look at that. And then that curtails into what the strategies and the tactics become. Well, if the CEO or the founder, or the board, you know, whoever the CMO, whoever it is, is like, no, 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 no. I just want to do what I see you know, Coca-Cola doing or what I see Gary V doing or whatever. It's like, right. but that's not your brand. You know, it has to fit in with what you guys are trying to achieve and what you're trying to achieve is very different from them. Right. And so we, we spend a lot of time on education, right? What is your customer lifetime value? How do you, how do you equate that? How do you figure that out? What's your customer acquisition cost? Do you guys even know that 99% of all small businesses don't know any of that. So we kind of have to educate them on that process. And then we show them, okay, well, if, if your average order value, your average sale is $5,000 because you're selling you know, a high ticket product or whatever, then guess what? We need to figure out what your margin is on that. And then we can figure out how much you can spend on advertising to go get those clients because everybody wants, else wants to spend as little as they possibly can to acquire customers. When in reality, the inverse is true. He who can spend the most money to acquire a customer wins, right? Yeah. Like when people, and I've, I've fallen out of this, but people used to ask me what what my company does. And I say, well, I'm a marketing and sales company that specializes in IT managed services or revenue cycle management or scribe services. You got The money has to go into the marketing and the sales, obviously in a way that's productive and, and drives results, not just willy nilly, you know, just throwing spaghetti money at the wall. Sorry to interrupt yeah. there, but I completely agree. Yeah. It, it has to be trackable. It has to be accountable. And, you know, uh, the funny thing is we'll get clients in and you guys probably experienced this too, given what you do, you, you get these clients and they say, hey, our, we know what our cost per lead is because it's very easy. You put that out on Facebook and it tells you what your cost per action is. Okay, I got I got 100 leads and I spent a thousand bucks, $10 cost per lead. So I need you guys to do better than that. And if we put a marketing strategy together, we might end up with a $20 cost per lead. They'll look at that like, well, that doesn't make any sense. You know, like, why am I spending more money on every single lead? Like, yeah, but how many of our leads are converting into actual sales 
And how many of those are an av- higher higher lifetime value than the ones you were getting before? You have to look at the entire spectrum. And if you don't look at the entire spectrum, then you're going to make really poor decisions on what you should be doing next, right? Yeah. Like one of the things we used to be really bad about is we, let's say we bought a list and we consider everybody on that list a lead. They're not a lead yet. They're just a name, an email, or a phone number, right? Until they're marketed to, to a point where they've, you know, maybe engaged enough to, to be converted to a lead and then so on and so forth. Yeah, exactly. You know, we, we talk a lot about that with clients is that they think, oh, well, everybody on my Facebook page is a potential lead. Like, well, the word potential is really important, right? <laughs> they're not a lead yet. You don't have their information. They're not even raising their hand saying they're interested. They just happen to like something you did one day and press the like button. That doesn't make them qualified right. to do business with you. Yep. Yeah, one of the things I'm looking at, Manny, I was looking at yesterday. So we just started this this month a uh, new cybersecurity awareness campaign, right? So we're on week four. We're using an, you know a campaign platform that we can track the clicks and the opens and the links and all that kind of stuff. But there's a feature in there that I didn't wasn't know how to, I didn't know how to do, but I turned it on. I haven't checked it since, but it it basically scores. It allows us to give a score towards the whatever type of engagement happens with that email, whether it's an open, a click, multiple clicks, multiple open, and then it moves them up a ladder to a point where, right, we know they've got a hundred points worth in the last thirty days. Okay, that needs to be on the short list for let's say our telemarketer call or try to get into you know an appointment or something. Yeah, absolutely. Lead scoring is huge, right? And the better you can do with that, the happier your sales team will be, which means the happier everyone's going to be. If, yep. if, you're, if your sales folks are calling people that are never going to answer the phone or no one ever wants to talk to you, then yeah, that, they're not going to stick around very long, right? So it, it's vital to understand that at a visceral level. Um, and the better you can, the easier it is to make those informed decisions and get your salespeople excited about selling. For sure. Cool. So uh, it seems to always come up, not that it's not necessarily planned, but it always comes up. Um, you're doing some stuff with AI and, and marketing mm-hmm. automation. Tell us about, tell us about what you, what you're doing there. Yeah. So I actually started working with AI and machine learning uh, 10, 11 years ago, give or take. Um, because at my, at the company I worked for, Hartford Steam Boiler Inspection Insurance Company, it's a mouthful, but we were essentially a technology insurance company. And what that meant was that the companies that, you know, my job became, I was a director of technology, and my job was to go out there and find these innovative entrepreneurs and technologists and find a way to build a business use case and put that into place with our company or our partners. And we were a reinsurance company, so essentially every Fortune 500 insurance company out there was one of our clients at some point. And I can say we, at in our database, we probably covered something like 60, 70% of every business in the United States in some way, shape, or form at some point. So we had a huge database of, of clients, of prospects, of former clients, and so on. And so we were always looking for technology that we could uh, loop into that. Well, AI comes on the, on the scene originally as like machine learning and in the IoT space, this is really good. So we started saying, hey, can we start building models around um, the data that we have? And creating not just an algorithm, but a a tool that will allow us to start figuring out what the data means and building stories around this data. And then we we started finding out some really, really cool things um, when we started implementing AI. One of the (laughs) it sounds really boring to a lot of people, but one of the coolest things that we did with AI was optical character recognition from PDFs of people that had written something 100 years ago because the company was 150 years old. And so taking that data, so people were writing in cursive back then, yeah, and yeah. they had secretaries that made things look really, really great on this little cardstock. So they, we would scan that, 
the AI would then take that, turn that, actually turn it into real um, writing, not gibberish like you know Adobe kind of stuff did a while ago, right? And turn that into uh, data that we could then mine. And you know, believe it or not, there's still equipment around in operation today that's 100 years old. So we were able to pull out source information from stuff that was not printed and turn that into training materials and training manuals for people. So that oh, was really cool. that was a really cool thing for me to see the the practical application of AI. Um, now everybody's heard about ChatGPT. It came on the scene about a year ago, and everybody's just like, "Oh my gosh, AI is so cool!" And in reality, of course it is, but there's so many other applications around it. So learning how to do uh, prompt engineering is something everybody talks about, and mm-hmm. you use prompt engineering to create these incredible mid-journey prompts. And so now we can create like I can become an artist now. I've just never an artist my entire life, and I can go and I can create some really cool artwork for websites, for clients, for whatever. Um, not that I want to spend my time doing that, but it was a really fun thing to learn. Yeah. But what we're doing for our clients um, is conversational AI. And if we think about most businesses, almost every business owner that I've talked to is like, it's just, there's too many channels to keep up with. How in the world are we going to do this? This is, you know, we need to go hire somebody just to manage Facebook uh, comments. We need to go yeah. hire somebody to manage our email and and do our email marketing. We need to go get somebody else who's going to do the phone calls. Our front desk person is getting overloaded with just having to make the phone call. So what we've done is we've built in models where if somebody messages you on Facebook, we can tie that in and through OpenAI and use the APIs and and then figure out the intent of that message, have the AI figure out what that person's asking, then go onto the website, figure out what that information is that they need. So essentially building that knowledge, knowledge base on the fly so they can have a conversation. And sometimes this backfires, right? Because the the AI is still not the, the most intelligent thing out there, even though we'd yeah. love to think it's the end all be all. It's not there yet. And we'd have people communicating back and forth on a text message chain or uh, a messenger campaign or something like that. And finally, they get to a point like, aren't you a real person? And so this is after like 20 or 30 messages, they realize I'm actually talking to a bot because they didn't yeah. pay attention. Like we name, we name our bots something. So like at AIN, the bot's name is Angie. At digital evolution, it's called Digi, right? So we we give our bots names, and sometimes the name is very clear it's a bot. Sometimes it's not, and so we have to yeah. remind people, hey, this is a bot. Yeah, we named our owl Olivia. So all of our email nice. marketing, it was kind of going out from me, and then it would go into my inbox, and I can't keep track of all these replies and out-of-office stuff. So I said, actually, it was Suyashi, our content person. She said, well, what if we had a pseudonym? and cre- create an inbox or whatever and i'm like well we need to na- let's let's name the owl and make it sound like it's a person so olivia sends out all of our email campaigns now it comes from olivia that's perfect yeah yeah and it's a great way and so it, it's really helping it's not necessarily helping with the sales yet i see some people saying oh man ai is making the sales for me it's like well is it really i mean i haven't seen maybe on the, the, the trinkets and trash stuff. Like if you're just selling like basic little things, okay. Yeah. But when you're talking about several thousand dollars where they generally want to get on a phone call with you, it's not making the sale for you. However, what it is doing, going back to what you're saying, is lead scoring, right? We can actually bring in better leads because now we're qualifying them. So I'll give you an example. At AIN, uh, we have these quizzes. And so we'll do sort of like the ask method and we'll quiz people to find out if they're a good fit. Because we do still bring on entrepreneurs and we bring them to our events and we help them raise capital and we'll bring them on on a consulting basis and maybe we'll partner with them to help them scale up. Well, I don't want to work with every single entrepreneur. There's millions of them out there all of a sudden and every single one thinks they have the next Google or the next Tesla or whatever. Right. And the fact is there's only so many Googles and Teslas 
because there's only so many that can actually do that. And we have to then vet these people out. We have to make sure, hey, are you not just another dreamer who, you know, and I, I hate to sound like such a, a pessimist with some people, but they don't have the stick They don't have the perseverance. Sure. They don't have the ability to weather those storms. And we need to weed that stuff out quickly before we even get down to sending them an engagement letter and getting going. So we use AI to try and weed that out with quizzes. And then we, we bucket them into different segments. And then we send them messages based off whatever segment they fall into. So you got a personality testing them through those questions? Essentially, yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. We're getting some That's basic nice. personality things like that. Um, I haven't gone full into the personality, but it's like, okay, you know, tell us how you handle this situation. And we do the same thing for investors, right? So a yeah. good question that we'll have it ask is, you know, somebody comes to you and they say that they have a $50,000 investment um, and it's practically guaranteed and you can verify this, that it's going to be able to turn into $500,000 in the next two to three years. How do you feel about something like that? And so um, they'll be able to answer it different ways. And if somebody says, no, absolutely not. Well, guess what? You're not really a great fit for an angel investor, right? Um, and, you know, you have to have a certain risk appetite. And so we score them like, hey, your risk appetite, oh, I got one yesterday, your risk appetite is 6%. Angel investing is not really for you. I'm sorry. Yep. We can't <laughs> do that. So it helps us to like weed out weed, bad leads. You'll be hungry for risk. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right. Um, well, cool. This is perfect. I was just going to transition. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Thanks for yeah. reeling us in. Um, so we will transition to some to, to some fun stuff, Jeff. Uh, All right. So are you a sports guy? What what kind of hobbies do you have? What do you like to do when you're not crushing Working. businesses? <laughs> so I have my kids, right? So I, right now it's flag football season. I coach Little League for them, so I'll do baseball. I love going shooting uh, with my wife, and we'll go out in the woods, and we'll go shooting pretty regularly, so I do stuff like that. And, you know, then as far as me, I'm, I'm always reading and learning more about uh, health and wellness stuff, actually, and then technology as well. So physical fitness, health and wellness. Um, you like to target shoot. God, I used to love to target shoot. Um, I haven't done it in so long. I haven't done any of the things outside of stuff with kiddos that I love. So I did some coaching, too. My son, his first year of baseball this year, he got started a little late, but he loved it. So nice. I helped out coaching there. Um, so where, where are you from, Jeff? Where do you... So originally I was born in Southern California, Los Angeles area, the, um, the Valley. And then in sixth grade, yeah, I, we ended up moving to Colorado. That's when my dad's business essentially imploded. We moved to Colorado. Oh. We, you know, moved from, uh, one, one sofa to the next and sometimes not having a place to live. So we had to go through all that stuff. So I lived in Colorado, graduated high school there, joined the Navy, traveled all over the country, got stationed in San Diego, moved to the Bay area. And now I'm up here in Washington. So I've been all over the country. Sir West coast. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So we're Midwest. Uh, Manny's from India, India. So he's in a really different time zone most of the time. <laughs> um, but so are you a sports fan? Do you have favorite teams or favorite type of sport that you like to follow? You know, I, I enjoy the sports. I love watching baseball. Um, but I got to tell you, it's gotten to the point with uh, it, after the, the strike in 94, mm. 94, nice, I think it was 94. Um, maybe it was 96. I can't remember now. But I kind of lost a lot of respect for professional ball players and the entire organization when I realized how political it was. And I, I don't, you know, follow any one individual. I like watching, hanging out with friends. So we'll watch the Seahawks and, and things like that. I'll go to a yeah. Mariners game, but it's really just more for the experience than it is for the actual sports and, and the athletes themselves. Yeah. The rose colored glasses were shattered for me a long time ago. I, was, I think we're probably a relatively similar age group. And I remember that, I remember that baseball strike and it, 
is the first time as in high school, I was like, this isn't really about the game anymore. Right. Yeah. There's, and then I, you know, say, but similar things happen with games. They evolve, they change, they kind of follow where the money goes and it becomes less about the game, more about the spectacle. And maybe I'm just old and jaded. Uh, maybe we're <laughs> yeah well i mean if you played any sports growing up then it was all about the game right yeah. and so to all of a sudden find out it's not anymore it's like yeah geez or then you have these players that will you know they're fair weather players and they'll say hey you know i'm i'm out of here that other team's doing better i don't like the coach anymore yeah. like, oh, it's just not it's not as much fun but i will say watching college i enjoy watching college they're still playing it for the fun of it for the most part um but what i really love watching i love watching those uh uh, the clips, you know, how amazing humans can be, right? And the oh, yeah. amazing things that just your average person, or sometimes elite athletes, but just amazing people doing amazing things. Like, man, that gets me choked up every time watching what people are able to achieve in their own lives. Yeah, like mm-hmm. you know, you know, physical rags to riches, or turning things around, or really applying human spirit to it and stuff. We always uh, give a little bit of time with Manny and cricket, and the board behind him. I wrote kind of the uh, the next game India plays. They're playing New Zealand on the 22nd. Manny, what's going to happen in that game? Of course, India is going to win, but... <laughs> just, of course, they're going to win. It's not even, of course they will. I think New Zealand might have something to say about that, bud. I mean, you know, both the teams are on the top of the pool right now. Oh, really? New yeah. Zealand's been playing both really well? Both of them played four games. Both of them have won all their games. I mean, today, in fact, you know, India played Bangladesh, a mediocre team, but that can surprise you sometimes. So, but India won. So, we both are at the top of the pool, New Zealand number one, based on run rate. Okay. You know, like, okay, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it will be interesting. It will be an even contest. What and should we watch? What should India. we watch for to be kind of the, India is going to win, but what's going to be the make or break kind of stuff in that game between those so two? So, both the teams are balanced. I mean, they have, uh, you know, great batsmen, great ballers, you know, fielding. I mean, all around, both the teams are pretty well balanced. So all it depends on that day is, you know, which team plays better. Okay. A better game. So we might we might be playing some cricket in house here today. We do this yeah. uh at the on Thursdays. We get together the staff and try to do some fun stuff, board games. Last week we played charades and this week Manny he said enough of these shenanigans, enough of these silly games. We're playing a real man's game. We're playing cricket. So we jumped on Amazon <laughs> and he bought a cricket set. And it arrived oh, this morning. So we're going to go outside in the back of the building, I guess. And I don't know what to do, but I know a little bit. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I wouldn't know what to do aside from not get hit by the ball, I think. <laughs> right. But, um, you know, Manny, you just said something. It reminded me of John Madden, right? So one of the commentators for the NFL Monday Night Football Forever. Uh-huh. And uh, he just said, well, it just comes down to who plays a better game today. You know, and John Madden would say, well, you know, the team that's going to win today is the team that scores the most points. So. <laughs> <laughs> Captain Obvious. Oh yeah, I miss I miss Madden. Yeah, he was a lot of fun to he was a lot of fun to watch, especially I mean in in, in this day and age, man. If he had memes of Madden all the time, that'd oh be great. <laughs> I remember he he'd be circling snot bubbles. He'd pause like the video. See that right there? That's snot bubbles. You know that guy's working really hard. I tell you, oh my god, that yep. was fun. Cool. All right. Well, we like to teach a little bit of uh, football to Manny, so. Um, he's learned. What have you learned so far in football? Not to fumble. You've learned Not last week. Yeah, hold on to Karen the said, make kicker. sure and have a good kicker um, yeah. because you don't want them losing the game for you. If you were to give Manny some football knowledge, what would you impart to him, Jeff? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> try not to be captain the obvious here. 
That's okay, because yeah. <laughs> Manny knows absolutely nothing. Besides what I just Well, told. I mean, you already got the big ones, right? So I, I'd say, you know, if we're just going to be, like, really simple here, it's like just don't get turnovers. If you can just avoid turnovers, you'll okay, have a turnovers. lot better chance of winning the game. So in that, well, a fumble would be a turnover. Like if you if you're running with it, you drop the ball and some the other team picks it up. Turn the ball over. Mm-hmm. Uh, throw an interception would be another example of a turnover. Yeah, Seahawks threw interceptions last week. They you know were dropping the ball. Yeah, if you can just not get turnovers and and consistently get first downs, you'll you'll practically win every game. So you mentioned the Seahawks, and we only you know in I'm in Green Bay territory. Um, I'm not necessarily a Packer fan. I'm not an anti-Packer guy either, but. A lot of what we hear on the media about the Seahawks, there was, you know, there's a big rivalry going on between those two for a number of years, uh, just because of the way games, certain games unfolded. What was mm-hmm. the, and and Russell Wilson being a University of Wisconsin guy, what was the what was the the sentiment like towards Russ when he was there versus now that he's gone? Oh man, everybody like we loved it when he came on board. You know, young guy, really fast, doing his scrambles and getting out of the pocket all the time and just making the game fun. Uh, between him and Marshawn Lynch and and, and mm. Richard Sherman, you know the whole Legion of Boom. We just had a lot of fun watching those games. Uh, then after we won the Super Bowl and everything went downhill, it's like, right, come on guys, we're we gonna get back on top here. And and then when he left, everybody kind of felt like he was a traitor, right? So that's mm. that was really a lot of the sentiment here is that, and, and I still don't even know all the details, but a lot of the sentiment was, man, what in the world's going on here? Like, why is this guy? Because for it was a few years before he finally left, even after winning the Super Bowl, and we just could not get anything going. Mm-hmm. So. It was hard to to really stand behind the guy, but I, of course, you know everything comes down to teamwork. And so, um, a lot of people were talking about it. it was his relationship that was causing the problems. You know, he wasn't his head wasn't in the game anymore. Hmm. Uh, which who knows if that's the case? You know, I can't speak for Russ. I know that yeah, really um, know. there was a gentleman. I will say this. So, there's a book. I wish I could remember the name of the book right now, but one of uh, it was Russell Wilson's like mindset coach had okay. written this book. And again, I'd, I'd have to go look it up and try and find it. Um, but he talked about how he would essentially get on the phone and talk with Russ and he helped Russ, you know, even get into the NFL initially. And this gentleman passed away right around that same time. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if that had something to do with it. If, if Russ ended up having some sort of, uh, it didn't have that mental aspect of somebody to help him out with that, you know, cause that's a huge part of the game. That's like probably the biggest part of the game is it's all mental. Well, in, in life in general is getting out of your own head and, you know, realizing that fear really isn't real and all the the voices in your head to tell you the wrong things, right? Mm-hmm. I got Manny's voice in my head constantly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, as long as it's good advice, you're all good. <laughs> How are you handling? You know, like okay, you have your own business now, plus you are like the CEO of AIN, and you, I believe I saw you in your LinkedIn page you are heading some of your some uh, like a director in some board. I mean, how are you handling all these things along with your business? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the most important thing is team, right? So on the marketing agency side, Digital Evolution, I have a great team. And my job there is setting the vision and then helping them. You know, I'm, I'm the guy that understands the marketing. So it's imparting knowledge as much as I possibly can. So every day I'm meeting with my marketing team. And we start the first the first part of my day is making sure that they have they know what they're doing. They're good on the, the clients. Everything's working and answering questions, right? So helping them. And then when it comes to AIN, you know, that business, I'm not going to say it runs itself because it doesn't, but it's a lot easier because it's a membership-based organization. We do events, right? So then I have an event team. One of my partners is amazing at events. She can handle this. We have incredible designers. We have incredible people that can do all this stuff, the social media, everything. 
my job um, when it comes to all of this stuff is advising and then creating content, right? So I'll do stuff like this and then we'll take this and we'll share this with all of our people. And then I do every single week, I'll get on, I'll do video content. And then we take that video content that turns into blogs, it turns into emails, it turns into social media posts, all that stuff. So my job is to create content, training, and then advising. That's that's a lot of what I do. So when it comes to all the companies that either I'm an owner in or uh, I sit on the board with them, I'll have meetings every single week with the executive team and it's it's brain power. So by about, you know, when I was first getting started, I was able to work until midnight, 1 a.m., no problem. Just keep going, hammering away, getting stuff done. Now, by about 5 or 6 p.m., my brain is mush, you know, <laughs> so I need to spend a little bit of me time in the evening or just, you know, go cook and hang out with the kids or something like that. But yeah, that's uh, my days are pretty full, starting about 6, 7.30 in the morning. What I caught there really, Manny, is he's doing a good job of defining roles and expectations of himself and the team, not overexerting yeah. himself or stepping into the territory that you don't need to be doing, but playing your role as, you know, as the leader. And like, as you said, the kind of more of an inspiring role, even a content creation role. And letting your team do what they're good at, right? That's one of the hardest things to do, man. I gotta oh, tell you, gosh. like when you when you build yourself up and you have the skill set to all of a sudden say, okay, somebody else needs to take this piece on. If it's not the Struggle most important that. thing that you should be doing, that's a really really hard thing to do. And I think a lot of business owners gloss over that. It's the number one reason, in my opinion, that small businesses stay small, is because you have the emith in operation. You're watching it happen, right? Yep. The, the yep. chiropractor wants to always be the main chiropractor and be the one in charge of everything. It's like can't grow a business if if you are the bottleneck. Yeah. Yep. You can tell you're a reader. You read the e-myth. I've already liked that about you. So I can tell. I can tell when I talk to you guys, the guys that read a lot, they they drop the lines from the books or the titles that like you Rich Dad Poor Dad was one of my first ones that that I read. I the, the book that that got me to read, I had to listen to it about a hundred times before I actually read it was Think and Grow Rich. I'm trying to get him to read that just to kind of oh, yeah. from a mindset standpoint. But Rich Dad Poor Dad, Cash Flow Quadrant, and then similar to you. I got kind of linked up with uh, with a with a, a network marketing company that really based itself on reading and leadership and stuff, and that helped me a lot. And I've moved on from there. But um, last fun thing, let's and then we'll wrap things up because uh, we've already used an hour of your time, which I'm so so thankful for, Bud. What is your favorite holiday this season? Is it Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and it, and of the ones, what do you do to to have a good time? You know, it's kind of funny. Um, I I'm not, I'm not a religious guy at all. And so I don't really, you know, handle, deal with any of the religious aspects of it, of this, but I love Thanksgiving. I love the food. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the problem with Thanksgiving. So my, my wife's family is vegetarian. Oh, okay. Um, I am a hundred percent a carnivore. I'd love oh. to, I would just eat Turkey all day long. Um, but, and then there's also the stress of having two different families coming together. And then I've, I have a split household with my kids and then I have to share. So it gets to be a lot of stress and our number one job uh, or our goal, I should say, it's not our job, but it's our number one goal is my wife and I is to reduce our stress during the holidays. And so I don't really go down the route of uh, buying gifts and doing all that sort of stuff. But what we do is we try to go out to the mountains. We go sledding with the kids if we can, have some hot chocolate, go out and enjoy the wintertime as much as we possibly can. Um, and when I can, I cook some really good food and I love having my cranberry sauce with my turkey. Yeah. I'm a closet Thanksgiving guy too. I mean, I can't dog on Christmas because when you got four kids, it's crazy and you just have fun. Oh man, you, you've got to. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I love Thanksgiving though. I love just the chill nature of it. You know, you just wake up, you know, like my wife loves to cook. I've had a couple of years where I've cooked because she's been down and out with one year we were having a baby, another year of surgeries. But man, I just love the chill nature of it and time to eat and just 
fall asleep because I've eaten too much. <laughs> yep, yep, absolutely. So real quick, uh, Trevor Moad was the guy's name I was referring to earlier, and he wrote the book It Takes What It Takes, and that was uh, Russell Wilson's mentor, so another good one. And if you like Napoleon Hill, my favorite one from Napoleon Hill is Outwitting the Devil. I, I've i never met anybody that read that, too. I have that book on my bookshelf in my office. Oh, man. It's, such it was, a, it's a hidden book. gem. I, it is. It's so, I found it at so Barnes and Noble. Too. Yeah, it's such a it's such a great book because you know written in what 1933 or something like that or it's it maybe the late 20s I can't remember the exact until relatively number, but, only a few years back. Yeah. yeah, it's only they only released it like 10 years ago, give or take. How did so, you find yeah, that book? A, I'm a huge Napoleon Hill fan, and I I've read everything. I you know the Success Principles and Outwitting the Devil and Grow Rich with Peace of Mind and and all of those different things. Like when you and I think that's that's you know I, I can end on this note. Most people have this vaccination theory of education, right? Which is, I got my degree, it's on the wall, I'm done. I don't need to do it ever again. And the fact is, like that's the, that should be the beginning of your journey. And so what I do, whenever I get somebody that I'm inspired by, I will listen to what they read, and I will go and I will get that book, and I will read that book. And then in most of these books, the author will refer to somebody else. And so you follow these cookie crumbs, or this breadcrumbs, and you say, hey, I like cookies better. But, you know, hey, you know, I can learn a lot more just by listening to the people that I idolize because they idolize somebody else or they learn from somebody else. And so don't just learn at the feet of the master, learn at the feet of the master's master, right? And keep going. And eventually you'll get to, you know, just really opening up your eyes to possibilities, uh, new information. You'll take the blinders off what's actually happening in the world. You learn so many different things. And I, that's the way I like to uh, go down this. So when, whenever I find something new by Napoleon Hill or the Napoleon Hill Foundation, I'll read that, you know, Bob Proctor. All these people are incredible, Earl Nightingale, um, because everything starts right up here. And if you can't get that through your thick skull, then you're never going to be able to succeed. Yeah. The cool thing about Napoleon Hill, he's like the original self-help book guy. It's like the first one. And then another, he's kind of an original podcaster. Years and years ago, after I listened to the audiobooks and got into reading it, I found YouTube videos over a decade ago of Napoleon Hill. He used to record himself sitting at the desk, going through his principles on it on a you know really low quality video and you can find those original videos online so it was kind of cool after i watched a bunch of those videos and him discussing the principles and you start reading the book all of a sudden you're reading the book and you hear his voice reading the words it's crazy which is funny because his voice is not what i expected it would be no it's very (laughs) very nasally and kind of kind of tinny but that's really cool see all these things when we meet these folks the things that we have in common uh, yep. kind of, you know, putting you in the places that you are. Well, this has been great, Jeff. Again, we could go for another hour. Don't want to do that to you. Maybe someday we'll, we can have you back on, but I'll tell you what, I've well, learned I'll have a to lot. come out to Wisconsin and get some cheese curds again. They don't really sell those out here in the Washington area. That'd be so. awesome. We'll have you out and we'll, we've, we've got a brand new, nice hotel going up across the, the way from us. We'll, we'll have you spend some time with us. This was great. Um, I can tell you what, anybody who watches this podcast, you know, our viewership is growing. Um, you know, our producer, Matt, and the guys, the team, they're doing a great job of getting this out there. But anybody who watches this, I'm going to go back and watch this in about two or three times and take some notes because I heard some things that I won't remember unless I do. But you gave some nuggets in this podcast that can be super helpful for folks to uh, get over some of the, I think, the hesitation to, you know, invest money in their marketing um, and really not to give up when things are tough. There's just so much. I you know, appreciate your time, Jeff. Manny, you got anything before yeah. we let Jeff go? No, definitely. You know, like we'll be in touch and I would like to, you know, talk to you about, you know, your marketing strategies and, you know, how you can help 
more, you know, like maybe us. Yeah, know, absolutely. Small businesses. Yeah, always. Yeah. yeah. Cool. That sounds great, guys. I appreciate it. It's been been a pleasure. 